When the truth is found to be lies And all of the joy within you dies What a stupid thing to say Oh, what a stupid thing to say Oh, what a stupid thing to say Oh, what a stupid thing to say drink like that and he don't eat he is going to die when that's it that's the line the line i'm referring to in the title of the episode the line is when spoken by gene wilder in character as jim the waco kid i've never been a big fan of the standard internet revenue generating practice of waiting until a significant portion of the way into the piece to reveal whatever the answer is to the question posed by the clickbait title so there you have it you can turn it off now you know what the line is Except, I guess, it'll take it, me a little longer to explain how that one word spoken by Gene Wilder justifies film as a medium. Well, I tried. So, ranking things is dumb, yeah? Except, of course, the ranking of personal friends worst to best that we all keep in our bedside table. But, if I were forced to rank my favorite art-slash-entertainment media, you know, the mediums, film, TV, books, music, uh, golf, uh, film, or movies or as I hope we will one day return to calling them, the pictures, would rise quickly to the top. For me personally, personal opinion, movies beat TV or music or books. By a little. They're the one I like most. They're cool. The conjunction of sound and visuals to tell a story in what is the closest possible of mirroring of real life fiction can achieve without going to the horrid, literally physically sickening experience of putting on a PlayStation VR headset. Movies. I love them. And... I am one of a not uncommon, not not annoying on the internet, kind of movie lovers who love nothing more than a good snatch of dialogue, who best get that moment of satisfaction and immersion that you look for when hearing a story from just the right combination of words coming out of an actor's on-screen mouth. At the far end of this spectrum are the devotees of a certain Mr. Sorknan, who have watched every episode of the fetish show The Newsroom. But... Without even going that far, there's something funny about loving film dialogue, because after all, it's the part of film that is least filmic. Look at the second best movie ever, 2001 A Space Odyssey, as an example. Only through the magic of cinema, conjunction of sound and carefully choreographed visuals, can you get the unparalleled storytelling experience that is that movie's final 30 minutes, the journey through the Stargate. Dave waking up in the empty ornate hotel that is his incubation chamber, his reemergence as the star child as large as Earth. Compare that to HAL 9000, intoning in clearly intelligible English, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that, an hour earlier in the movie, in response to Dave's request to open the pod bay doors. The fact that Dave and HAL talked is no better expressed by a visual medium than it would be in a novel, of which 2001 is a very good one, by the way, or a mere auditory medium like audiobooks or podcasts, if you still care about, say, vocal inflection. In terms of what film brings to the table, Dialogue is arguably the least anything. And yet, I persist in embarrassingly scrawling lists of my favorite movie lines. And there are thousands and thousands of such lists and YouTube videos and conversations of favorite line. And we rightly laud the best dialogue writers, for, for whatever their reasons were, putting their pens to this and not novels or whatever. Billy Wilder, Nora Ephron, and yes, Messrs. Sarkin and Tarantulino. Are we all stupid? Would we all be edified more if we just read books? Probably, 
But that's hard. And the best movie dialogue just rocks and uses all the tools at its disposal to rock. You've got the words, and they get perfectly dressed with actor, inflection, facial expression, costume, ooh, maybe a little background music, and you got a stew going. A book just has the words. Can't compete. I think this principle is best demonstrated with comedy because lines that are meant to be funny have an immediate and replicable physiological reaction. A laugh. Really, really good dialogue that is merely poignant or dramatic can produce a mmm or a fuck, but that isn't as standardized across the board as a laugh. So in terms of how a single line can be measured against another, it's easier with comedy. If I may criticize books once again, let's look at one of the great comedic exchanges in film history from Happy Gilmore. You're in big trouble, though, pal. I eat pieces of shit like you for breakfast. <laughs> you eat pieces of shit for breakfast? No. That's funny in a vacuum. It's funny on paper. But it doesn't hit that all-time high without Adam Sandler's voice. When I decided to do this pod essay on a single line of movie dialogue, pretty much all the contenders that came to me were lines I find funny. Here are some honorable mentions. This is pitiful. A thousand people. Freezing their butts off, waiting to worship a rat. What a hype. Probably like they used to mean something in this town. They used to pull the hog out and they used to eat it. You're hypocrites! All of ya! Oh man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it, it was an accident. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That last one is the one that hoity-toity bodies like the American Film Institute usually say is the best line of dialogue in Hollywood history. And who am I to disagree? Shit's hilarious, she gets her moral dessert, I wish the movie ended right there when he says that and didn't continue for two more minutes to give the villainous plantation owner a slight spot of hope. So, let's talk about the line I did in fact settle on, the line I'm claiming here justifies film as a medium. I basically already laid out how a line could do such a thing. It uses film's ability to relay a million sensory elements at once to the maximum possible effect. But, in particular, in the grand podcast tradition of rambling about things I like, which, mind you, I think is a more productive exercise than rambling about things I don't like, because this is a pop culture podcast, it's not a politics podcast. I suppose then, rambling about things I don't like could maybe make for an ch effective change for society. Or not. Well, in the tradition of rambling about things I like, why is this one-word line from Blazing Saddles so good? Let's back into that by way of some Blazing Saddles behind-the-scenes fun facts. Blazing Saddles' screenplay has a number of credited writers, including Richard Pryor, for whom the role of the protagonist Bart, eventually played beautiful by, beautifully by Cleo Van Little, was originally written. But the two primary writers were Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder. Their first collaboration was 1967's The Producers, on which only Brooks is credited on screenplay, but Wilder's Oscar-nominated acting performance clearly had some substantive influence, as made obvious in Brooks' Oscar acceptance speech that year. Well, I'll just say what's in my heart. Ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. But seriously, I'd like to thank Sidney Glazer, the producer of The Producers, for producing The Producers. <laughs> Joseph E. Levine and his wife, Rosalie, for distributing the film. <laughs> I'd also like to thank Zero Mostel. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. Thank you very much. Then Brooks and Wilder co-wrote Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Both in 1974, Brooks's two best movies, two of the best Hollywood comedies ever, and holy shit, what an insane back-to-back. -back. What a feat to do that in one year. 
Either would have been a definite contender for Best Picture if not for a little movie called The Godfather Part Two. And no offense to Mr. Pacino, or Art Carney, who actually beat Pacino and Jack Nicholson for Chinatown for Harry and Tonto in terms of the Best Actor Award. Harry and Tonto, classic, we all love it. But uh, Wilder should have had that acting Oscar bagged for Froderick Frankenstein. Frankenstein. So, through producers, Blazing Saddles, and Young Frankenstein, it's known that the way the writing collaboration worked was Brooks produced manic insane comic idea after comic idea. Uh, Mongo punches a horse and it falls the wrong way. The doctor throws a dart off screen and it kills a cat, etc. And Wilder, with his sad eyes, brought some nuance and reined him in and focused on cohesion. I'm sure there's some people listening to this who will better understand if I reason by Rick and Morty analogy, so I'll just say that Mel Brooks was the Justin Roiland to Gene Wilder's Dan Harmon. Look at a later Brooks movie after this collab ended, like Spaceballs. Now, I love Spaceballs, but Brooks without Wilder reining him in is how you get material like, It's Mega Maid! She's gone from suck to blow! Once again, a line I love. I love so dearly. But objectively lacking the genuine satire, character development, and, like, point of those earlier movies. And it begins the path to the bad Mel Brooks movies, like Dracula, Dead and Loving It. So... Brooks and Wilder are at the height of their powers when writing Blazing Saddles, which does an amazing balancing act, which people on the internet are always annoyingly saying could never be repeated today, by being absolutely high-octane, a guy in a Hitler suit saying, nah, they lose me after the bunker scene, silliness, for its entire 93-minute running time. Can't believe I had to learn the running time to make this. While, nonetheless, despite all that constant, constant, super high-pitched silliness, being an incredibly powerful pain against racism just a few years after the dust cloud settled from the 60s civil rights movement. The movie succeeds in this by, unlike its comparatively deadpan twin, Young Frankenstein, being a capital C comedy. Like an older farce, every character in this is, is cartoonish and large, especially the white characters when they're being racist. The exception is Wilder as Jim, the outlaw who feels an immediate outsider bond with Bart the new black sheriff. Wilder plays Jim with his sad, sad eyes, quite naturalistically. Maybe this speaks to a limitation of the film, that Hollywood politics of the time, or Brooks and Wilder's own hesitance as white writers, meant there was this demarcation between the crazed nature of the racial element and the more human approach to this white deuteragonist. But, inasmuch as I have a right to say so, I think it is a strength, keeping the race hatred as depicted in the movie totally in the realm of the absurd. Bart, after all, is definitively a hero, and this moment I'm focusing on is a smaller one that doesn't take away from his journey and eventual victory. So, let's get into it. The immediate preceding scene is Blazing Saddles at the height of its ridiculous powers, Bart getting held at gunpoint upon his arrival in town until he bugs Bunnies the crowd by holding himself at gunpoint. See it all over this town! Oh, Lordy Lord, he's desperate! Do what he say! Do what he say! Oh, baby, you are so talented. And they are so dumb. And then we have Bart going about his sheriff's duties, helping the drunk Jim down from his sleep upside down. Are we awake? We are not sure. Are we black? Yes, we are. Then we're awake. But we're very puzzled. They introduce themselves, and then Jim pulls out the bottle, and we get the line. A man drink like that and he don't eat? He is going to die. When? Maybe I've done a bit of a rug pull here, because I was talking all about how the most measurably amazing lines are funny, and this line, of course, doesn't really make us laugh. It has the structure of a joke, but it's... Well, listen to it. You understand its content. When? 
when specifically will I die from drinking? Tell me now, it's good info for planning, because I'm certainly not going to stop drinking. Listen to it over and over, as I had to to make this, and it's, one starts applying it in other metaphorical contexts. Uh, the drinker is America, continuing to consume the racist rhetoric of its leadership. It's the whole world continuing to devour our natural landscapes. And that supererogation is unnecessary, because it's still just as poignant as a character moment for this sad guy who we've seen for only 45 seconds, and who we already know has been through the absolute ringer. It's a moment of breath and of sadness that allows the giddiness of the rest of Blazing Saddles to sit in the brain and breathe for a sec and share its message. And, yeah, the breathtaking nature of that cannot be done without the ridiculous preceding 30 minutes, and Wilder's beaten cowboy outfit, sunken, sad, sad, sad eyes, breathy inflection, and absolutely defeated face. When? Would play well on the page in some hypothetical Blazing Saddles serial novel. But it's gotta be a movie. And everybody went and saw it together in big communal rooms. I don't mean to beat up on books too much. Some definitely have to be books. Uh, Gatsby, that's your example. Only works as a book. So yeah, that's my defense of movies. I hope uh, we can all agree that they uh, can stay. A big ol' rest in peace to my man Gene. And a big thank you to all who have listened to these last ten stupid things I had to say. This project is going to be going on hiatus for a bit as I ostensibly finish college. So shouts out to Iman, Jonah, Gabe, Ben, Ian, Noah, and Ed. And uh, here's one more song. Fun fact. The guy who originally sang this song did not know it was a, uh, a comedy movie. Uh, but Mel Brooks was a big fan of him as a country singer. Didn't have the heart to tell him. Whack! He watched Blazing Saddles. He noticed there were off-color jokes. He wrote about it online. It made him feel real smart. He said this movie could not get made today. As if that meant anything. He criticized Blazing Saddles. He thought it would.